first of all, thank you so much for availing yourself to do the show. Um, I appreciate your time and um, the insight that I'm sure that you will give to the listening audience um, just by your experiences. And hopefully we can get from you some, um, I'd love to hear also some of your ideas and suggestions for how we as a, as a country and as a community um, can do things to make our, our system uh, of schooling better. Um, let's start initially with uh, kind of, I want to just dive right into like <laughs> the divan, right? So we know that there have been a series of school shootings um, throughout the country over the last probably 20 years or so since Columbine. It's been around 20 years. Right. Um, and there hasn't really been much in the way of legislation to prevent that from happening um, as a byproduct of people being able to have um, assault weapons. So as an educator who works in schools every day, um, first of all, just from a human perspective, how do you feel when you hear about school shootings? Uh, it makes it uneasy. Uh, it makes any educator feel uneasy simply for the, the reason of you go into a school building to make sure that you're preparing students to be future leaders. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to send their children to a place or a go to a, their job knowing that your life may be taken that day by gun violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and we understand the constant debate with the Second Amendment and others as far as the right to bear arms and, you know, the, the privilege to carry those type of weapons. And I think we just get lost inside of the chaos. But the main point people need to remember is you don't want that type of danger happening at school. Sure. Um, and for me as a, as an educator, I, that doesn't make me feel comfortable at all. So, I mean, when you hear it, do you, do you hear about them? You heard of this Parkland, there's, there was Columbine, there was a uh, shooting in Maryland recently. Um, do you, and your, your students to give the listeners context are second grade? Yes. Uh, I teach at South Green Elementary School. I teach second grade. The ages range from seven to nine, depending upon the student has been retained. Um, it is 100% free and reduced lunch, which means that the family's income is at the poverty line or 130% below the poverty line, which qualifies us as a Title I school. We receive funds from the government to make sure the students are um, able to have the same type of education as others. Um, so so, every, so that I'm clear, so that everybody's clear. Yes, sir. Every student in your school lives in poverty. Yes, sir, 100%. Now, that's on How many paper. students? Uh, we have a probably 475, uh, from my understanding. They just in, input a new program called Open Enrollment, which allows students to choose which school they want to go to as long as they have proper transportation. So those students who were able to be able to afford transportation, whether their parents work or not, no longer go to our school. Um, if you look at our school online and Google it, even if you watch the episode from Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres, excuse me, <laughs> the country part came out, Ellen. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> you right. will see that the school is surrounded by barbed wire. You will see there's a graveyard across the street. You will see there's Section 8 housing 20 yards behind the school. Um, and we serve that type of population. It's a beautiful group of kids. You will always have that small percentage that, you know, you just need to just go in the room and sling oil everywhere, you know, and speak in tongues. But, <laughs> you know, you always have that small population. But for the most part, man, there are some beautiful babies there whose skin is dripping with melanin who are full of potential wow so when you when you uh you always want to be an educator i did not uh i wanted to initially be a <laughs> go to the nba uh because as every young african-american male like 
Yeah, so, yeah. That's mainly what you saw on, you know, on the visual on TV. And honestly, I was short for a long period of time until my mother read the book "Salt in My Shoes" by Michael Jordan's mom, and she talked about how they put salt in his shoes and prayed every night. And I think God thought it was funny because I grew from like five seven to six four, <laughs> like out of nowhere. So wow, I got a scholarship to Winston-Salem State University HBCU, uh, transferred to Elizabeth City State University, uh, and I was majoring in psychology. And I got bored, Ted. I was just this is. You know, learning about theories is great, but I'm not having no fun. So I decided to become an educated man, and yeah. I haven't looked back. That's so incredible, and it's really powerful because there are not – I don't have the stats before me. Um, there there aren't a lot of black male educators, I wouldn't think, right? Two percent in the whole entire education field. Wow. To bring even more context, 80 percent of educators in the education field are Caucasian, Caucasian women from my understanding. Mm. So how do you think – Having people who having such a small percentage of black teachers overall and black male teachers even at an even smaller percentage, how do you think that affects students of color? Oh, deeply. It affects students of learning. Uh, students, uh, it affects students learning in a tremendous way. Uh, American University and NPR have done a study that shows that if a child has a teacher of color between eight between between grades three and five, they are twenty seven percent. Uh, less likely to drop out of high school. That's just between grades three and five. Um, there hasn't been any type of data or quantitative data to prove having multiple teachers of color, but we know students learn best when they're able to identify with the educator and they be able to see themselves within the educator. It doesn't have to mean that we have to be the same color to see our, see myself within you. It could be the passion that I'm connected to inside of you. It could be the the drive. It can be your interest that you take uh, very you know priority in, but. Students learn better when they are connected to the educator in the room. And students are probably the, the best lie detector. They can tell if you're faking it or not. Right. I think that's such a powerful point because, uh, you know, and, and to your point, to just so that people understand, there are, you know, there are black male students who've had white female teachers who are incredibly impactful in their lives. So it's not like yeah. we're saying you have to have a teacher who looks like you. But as you said, they were able to perceive that this teacher really is concerned about me. Right. This teacher really cares about my life. My aunt um, was a uh, well, she was an English teacher <clears throat> um, in the Memphis City public school system for a number of years, and um, you know I had the fortune of having you know an artistic ability uh-huh. <laughs> that allowed me to go to an integrated school in Memphis. So I was able to go to a performing arts high school where it was just a different world than it was at the school I would have been assigned to in my neighborhood. Right. Um, and, and so looking at after the fact, I went to, I, I left um, Memphis, went to the military for a bit, then came to Atlanta to go to Morehouse. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I appreciated um, when I got home, I, my aunt was still teaching, and she was, I'm teaching. So sometimes she would ask me to help her, you know, grade papers and read papers. And I really, man, I would be taken aback at like something as simple as not using the right there in a sentence. And I was like, how old are these kids? And she was like, oh, these are high school students. And some of them were AP. And I was like, what? Like, so, so I said that to, 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 to give a premise for this question. How do you feel like, or why do you feel students are able to matriculate without learning to, you know, read, write, or understand kind of basic communication skills. How do you feel like that happened? So how they're able to progress through the system without actually learning the proper writing skills and the, and the proper academic material? Yeah. Basically, man, because there's, there's the, I heard this, there's this uh, 
Jesus Christ, I can't remember the, it's not 13th on Netflix, but there's an educational documentary on Netflix, man. And the guy made a quote that said, the most dangerous system to the American youth is not the prison system, it's the American education system. And the reason why that is, is because there are so many different loopholes and so many different systems that are set up for individuals to fail. Wow. It makes it very difficult. So, for example, one of the very things I love, I actually did a speech in Boston this past weekend at the ASCD conference, one of the biggest educational conferences in the world. Mm -hmm. And I stated that the classroom is a stage where the heart and soul of the teacher is projected. Mm. The classroom is a stage where the heart and the soul of the teacher is projected. So check this out, Ted. If I'm an educator that truly cares about the well-being of the child, if I'm an educator that truly cares about everybody receiving equity so they can be able to succeed in life, that everybody is having all the resources possible to make them successful, then I want to design lessons to make that happen. I want to build relationships to make that happen. I want to create a classroom environment where learning is a priority. Mm -hmm. But if I'm an educator that comes from a biased background, that grew up that grew up in privilege and does not understand the concept of equity and equality, I'm going to cause more harm to my children than do them good. And what ends up happening in America is we have teachers in pockets of schools that stand behind those different biases and bigotry and different types of discriminate, the type of dysfunctional attitudes, and they're taking it out on their children in their belief system. Mm. And children are suffering because of that. Right then on Huffington Post, probably a month ago, there was a teacher uh, that had a podcast, but she was a white nationalist teaching sixth grade social studies. Wow. And she admitted that she was teaching those things to the children, that one race is better than another race. That's what I'm saying, what happens inside of the American education system. We have some pockets of people that not only say those things and teach those things in the classroom, but they have designed procedures and systematic approaches that actually fall in line with those ideologies, which causes harm on children, and most importantly, children of color and minority groups. <laughs> I just said a lot. My bad. <laughs> no, but it's, it's so good because this is so this is so my bag. Like everybody who knows me, you know, knows this is my bag because I don't. I think what happens too often in in our country is that we romanticize everything. You know, and I often make this analogy: if you were to go to the doctor and the doctor you know, diagnose you with diabetes. Right. They said you have diabetes, but you don't have cancer, you don't have glaucoma, and you don't have rheumatoid arthritis. Um, but didn't focus on the fact that you do have diabetes, then that's going to rest, and you're going to, mm -hmm. you know, eventually have to have things amputated, and it's going to cause you to have a premature death. And I think right. what we do uh, so well, uh, to much to our demise, is just kind of, you know, kind of focus on the exceptions to the rule, you know, people will focus on an Obama or an Oprah Winfrey or a Will Smith or whomever, but will not look at these these kids that you're talking about who are going through these systems um, and not being right. educated. I, I remember watching a documentary about uh, Freeway Ricky Ross, who was at the epicenter of the crack cocaine, uh, crack cocaine epidemic. And mm -hmm. the, the most riveting part about his entire documentary was the fact that the man did not learn to read or write until he was in his 20s. He couldn't even read or write and had completely gone through 12 years of high, of school. I just, I just, and I couldn't wrap my brain around that, which is one of the reasons I wanted to ask you that question. But what do you think we should do? Like, how can we, how can parents, how can concerned people, um, First of all, assess what's happening in these school systems, and, and then what do you think we can do to kind of remedy some of those things? The very first thing we need to make sure that we understand and make sure everybody understands this concept is that 
cares on the very first teachers. That's just facts. Not only is that biblical, that's statistically proven. And it's been shown that children who receive proper learning and proper supplemental academic skills from uh, birth to age five, they do better in school. Ted, every year we have kindergartners that come in that do not know how to spell their name. They do not, do not know how to hold a pencil properly. They do not know their ABCs or their numbers. They do not know their shapes. These are things you learn in pre-K. And then we get mad when the teacher approaches the parent and say, well, your child is below grade level or they're not performing as they should. We have to do a better job as a community in making sure we're educating our children before they go into the system. I know it's a tough pill to swallow. I know it's hard, but every other culture has grasped this, right? And we need to make sure that we hold on to that. And then when we know that our end is tied up, then we can be able to keep everybody else accountable. It's sort of tough to point your finger at the teacher for blaming them for giving your student a bad grade, but you don't even know how well your child really is doing as far as the academic level. So I think the very first thing is we empower ourselves and keep ourselves accountable. Ask kids, you can find out if your child can read if you ask them to sit down beside you and read a book. You can understand if they're reading fluently or they're chopping up on words or they don't know a lot of words on the page. It starts there. But, but, but so, so I'm gonna so I'm gonna push push you a little push you maybe maybe into a corner of sorts. Like, I, I know that's a reality. Right. But I, I had I had this conversation with my aunt mm-hmm. and my my cousin is a VP okay. uh, at, a, at a school in Memphis and the stories that she tells me they're really like kind of unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have parents who don't read or can't read or are not concerned about the child's education, is there a, is there a fix? Is there something like, you know, does any of that, like, can the school do more? Like, what do you think should happen? Because I know that there are some parents or who may not be parents, but caregivers who either don't prioritize education or not, or are not educated. And I'm themselves. glad you said that Ted, because I actually, the reason why I'm able to speak so boldly about it, because I really am about this life. Like I live it every single day. Somebody made this amazing statement sure. that stated, Parent involvement is a luxury in today's 21st century time. Sounds crazy, but it's a luxury. So in my school, there is not a lot of parental involvement. We do not have a PTA. I do know some parents, especially in my classroom and throughout the school, that work their tail off to make sure their child is academically prepared and staying on top of their students with their grades. But what I will say to your point Mm -hmm. is that if there is no parent there, then it is up to the teacher and the school system to find programs that will provide that equity adding in extra resources mm-hmm. to make sure that child is on grade level doing what they're supposed to do. The issue with that, Ted, is that mm-hmm. equity is tough. Providing equity yeah, is. is extremely difficult. Oh. And, and sure. I think that's where the problem is at. And then that boils down to the individual effort of the teacher and to the individual effort of the school. And, and that's just where it lies at, man. And I really think people can – People can really make a difference if we understand that. I put this this quote inside of my book because I named the title Relationships Before Content. And the gist is that you have to build those proper relationships before you start giving students standards and tests. Because if you don't, they're not going to listen to you anyway. And the lady said this quote by Barbara Coloroso. She said, if kids come to us from a strong, healthy, functioning families, it makes our job easier. If they do not come to us from strong, healthy, functioning families, it makes our job more important. More important meaning that we've had to find equitable situations and solutions to make sure our children are succeeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you do have you mentioned in the book. I think it's vitally important. Can you just give the listeners a, in, a bit of insight about um, your book? I would love to, man. The book is called "Get Up or Give Up: How I Almost Gave Up on Teaching." 
mm-hmm. I decided to go with a very honest and transparent title. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people see the Ella DeGeneres and a lot of followers and things, but they do not understand uh, because of the equity that I was trying to provide to the students at my school, it was mm-hmm. causing a serious burnout. Um, it is not easy. It is very tiring. It is. It will take a weight on you. It will. It will tear you down emotionally, spiritually, mentally. Trying to be the parent, the teacher, the doctor, the the police officer, the the protector um, yeah. at your school. Yeah. Um, and just in that moment, man, when I was ready to be done and call it quits, uh, I decided to you know rethink about how I approach the children at my school. To rethink yeah. about you know who are these babies and don't they deserve a fighting chance in life too. And before mm-hmm. I know it, man, I made this amazing video for the kids, and Ellen saw it, and the rest was history. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, because you, you made the video, you made a, you, did you write the song? So, to give the people a backstory, you were, it was a way yes. for you to, it was a way to just reach them, building that relationship. I, I was teaching something to them, and people don't like to admit it, teachers don't, but we teach things wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. So, I was teaching them a, a basic standard on, Understanding characters in the story, man. Only two out of 20 kids passed. And I love mm-hmm. this quote that I said on NBC News, Nightly News with Lester Holt. If 80% mm-hmm. of your students fail an assessment, it is not the students. It is the teacher's fault, right? So yeah. I went back to the drawing board. I made some lyrics because they kept dancing to OT Genesis, Push It. Uh, mm-hmm. And I told them, if you guys pass this next test after I reteach it differently, I will make you a music video. And they looked at me with that, you know, eyebrows up like, what's good? We, we ready. Yeah. And, uh, they passed it, man. I posted the video, never tagged Ellen, never tagged Shade Room or anybody, and just put it on my Instagram. And man, that thing just blew up over the weekend. And, and God truly <laughs> used that small video, that small idea to change yeah. our world around. Yeah, and I, I think that's such a, it's interesting that I think some people don't like incentivizing, you know, kids in certain ways, but I think given certain situations, you you know it could it can be a great tool because like you, as you alluded to said before like every kid doesn't learn the same and you can't exactly. educate everybody the same way. I had to give a presentation at um all boys school here in Atlanta called Best Academy, which is in the Urban Center, mm-hmm. and I was talking about music business. Uh, they were fifth grader, sixth graders, and you know I try to make it funny. I talk about you know artists that they were familiar with. Explain you know the difference in how you make money as an artist versus a songwriter. And so the kids were probably on the scale of one to ten. They were probably paying attention about you know on a six, mm-hmm. right? Which is not you know bad. So what I did at the end of the class, I said, well now I'm going to ask a couple of questions before I go. So I asked a question you know in review, and a couple of kids raised their hand. I asked him one 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 kid. I asked him. You know, the question, he got the answer right. I said, come up here. So he came up to the front, Mm -hmm. and I gave him $20. Oh, yeah. And so you can imagine what happened when I asked question two, right? right? So every hand goes up. Even people who had were completely clueless, Mm -hmm. like no idea what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And so the point I made after I I had, you know, awarded like five of the kids, is I said, this is the thing you need to understand. Information is always valuable. Mm -hmm. All information. I don't care who's who's talking about what. Like, take something from every experience you have because you never know where you're going to need that later on in life. Um, so the teacher asked me to stay for her next class. But I told her I was out of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it works like that, man. And, and I, I I love it, Ted. I love it because I'm not going to pay my ch- I'm not going to give my students a prize to be quiet and, and behave. No, you're going to work for this. Like, I want to set my expectations so high. 
because I have information and knowledge as an educator that if this child hit this point, then they'll be on the same wavelength as everybody else and same academic level as everybody else in America. So I set my expectations high. And if my kids hit it, oh, we are definitely going to turn up. I may do a party. I may do a random dollar giveaway. I may invite a celebrity to the classroom. I I do that on purpose to make it an educational experience, not just learning. And I love how you said how you went to art schools and and, and how, uh, well, how you went to, you know, school that definitely taught arts and and how you're a musician. So I'm very cognizant of all the different types of learners in my classroom. And that's why my classroom Mm. just isn't a standard place. You know, I laugh because I, I was one of those kids used to beat on the desk, you know. There's always a song on in my head, you know. <laughs> I'm a, I, I got some type. You got some type of rhythm to me. Somebody clap their hands, you snap your neck, and I've created a yeah. classroom environment that's so welcoming to that student that they they yep. want to be in my class. <laughs> Just because you learn yeah. different doesn't mean you can't learn, man. I'm sure you have a popular class. Um, <laughs> so shifting a little bit, um, I was I've been hearing some conversations about. Um, surrounding Bessie DeVos and, you know, some policies that she's pushing forward as, 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 as the Secretary of Education. Um, so I want to kind of get some insight from you on uh, the vouchers, mm-hmm. how those work, we don't understand, and versus charter schools, um, and then subsequently what your thoughts are on homeschooling. Okay. I know that's a lot. So, so maybe, maybe, maybe the charter schools and then uh, homeschool, Okay. Mm-hmm. And then they talk about vouchers. Okay. So, yeah. But as far as the vouchers, and when it comes to public school versus private school, um, from the information I have gathered, that when a student leaves a public school and goes to a charter school, the public school ends mm-hmm. up losing money. I think people are really going to begin sure. to find out in education that at the end of the day, it really doesn't boil down to the child. It's really boiling down to the money, right? So the, mm-hmm. the issue that we're having right now is people are fighting for school choice. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I still haven't developed a premise yet for where I stand in the argument, Ted, because there's so many pros and cons. Um, but what sure. I will say is this. Um, when we're making these decisions about children and which type of school they should go to, we have to make sure that we take the money out of the issue from who's going to be uh, profit from it, who's going to gain profit from it. Because if profit is the yeah. main motivation then somebody's going to be pushing for a certain side because they have their hand inside of the bucket and they want to become richer. Um, so if a child yeah. is truly going to another school to actually gain an educational experience and it's in the right context, I mm-hmm. am for it. But if a child is going to another school and the decision of that is based solely around money, then we have an issue, right? Because you're profiting off of a child. Yeah. So I definitely want to do more research inside of it. As far as Betsy DeVos herself, I definitely give respect to the fact that she... Is in the position that she's in. Do I believe she is qualified? Quite frankly, no. Um, I remember going and hearing the the, the the Senate hearing when they asked her the difference between proficiency and growth, and she doesn't understand the profi- the, the the difference between the two at that moment. But you're going to leave all of the educational systems right. inside of America. That's a problem for me. Um, and this on. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear your your position on that as an educator, um, as a citizen. You know, I, I feel strongly, uh, very strongly about, you know, her as a pick. I thought it was, um, you know, poor choice because I, I do feel like, you know, the Secretary of Education is going to help shape policies that affects students right. all across the country. And I think, you know, you should have somebody who understands education, the mm-hmm. diversity of systems, the complexity of problems along racial lines and mm-hmm. economic lines um, and geography, like all those mm-hmm. things come into play. 
when you're, I think, should come into play when you're choosing someone to look right. at, you know, what's happening. I mean, I, I think that it's, it's interesting. I can't remember the name of the school. But it was an all-boys school. Um, I want to say it's majority black in Jersey, I want to say. And I was watching okay. a story on it. And they have a 98% graduation rate. Um, and 90 plus percent mm-hmm. of the boys go to college. Um, and so I think to your point, like, are these kids different or is there a different system that these kids are, you know, benefiting from that are properly equipping them to go to, you know, the um, next level of education? You know, and I think that. Oh, I'm listening to you. You, you go ahead and talk because I'm ready to rock whenever you're ready. I, I was listening. You made a great point. But I think that my point is, is that, you know, we, we have these conversations in a vacuum mm-hmm. a lot of times and we do not talk about the fact that the real you know, determining factor is, is always dollars. Mm-hmm. You know? um, <clears throat> years ago, Oprah did a show called uh, Crisis in Our School. It was a two day show that was I mean, it was absolutely riveting which went from Chicago to D.C. to other places around the country. And they had a school in Chicago in the, in the hood. Um, with, you know, metal detectors, um, no bands in the, in the band program. Literally they had like no instruments in the band program. Um, they had a pool that was, you know, not functional. And then had a school in suburbs that had like a computer lab or like Apple computers, Olympic style swimming pool, like all these things. So they did a swap of the kids for a week. Some of the, some of the kids and the white kids that came from the urban I mean, suburbs were just like, first mm-hmm. of all, how do you even feel conditioned to learn walking through a metal right. detector? Like they were already like mm-hmm. put off. Um, the books were, you know, pages were torn out, like not having, you know, proper um, tools. And, and then the white, the black kids were like, felt like they were, you know, at a college, you know, an Ivy League school of sorts because they had never seen that type of uh, those types of things available to them. You know, as students. And so when you look at the complexity and the diversity of these along economic right. lines, how can people in poorer communities um, do something to help their kids, you know, to get their kids on par? Or is it even possible? I believe it's possible. There's this quote that states, if a flower doesn't bloom, you don't change the flower, you change the environment where the flower is being bloomed mm-hmm. or being grown. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right about the issue. There isn't a difference. The kids aren't smarter. There's just certain systems and resources that are put into place that will allow that child to survive and not only just survive, but thrive, sure. scratch, survive, sure. be able to thrive. Sure. My mentor, Ron Clark and Kim Bearden, who have the Ron Clark Academy inside of Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. phenomenal educators. If you sit down and talk to them, they believe in equity for all children. Mm-hmm. They love helping all children, and they put their actions and money where their thoughts and their, and their ideologies and pedagogy is. Mm-hmm. And if you study the school, they actually serve minor, majority minority students. Mm-hmm. But the things they're doing at the school's head is absolutely amazing. Oprah mm-hmm. helps fund the school. Coca-Cola yep. helps fund the school. They had devised systems. Uh, design systems, excuse me, that help fund the school to give those students that experience. I just found out this weekend that if you go to the Ron Clark Academy from fifth to eighth grade, check this out, Dan, you will have visited all six continents. Really? Yes. All six continents. Now, I'm I go back and do my school. research, but yeah, and, I, and the crazy thing about it is I, because I talk to them frequently and, and I notice that the educators are constantly gone and I know eighth grade always takes their trip to Africa, but from my understanding, they will visit at least six continents. They take a trip every year for every grade level. 
But it's it's having that system, having that machine, having those resources behind you that can make magic happen. So, for example, at our school, we may not have access to those type of funds, and that's okay. The fact of your presence is is valuable enough, you know? If your child is being disrespectful inside of a classroom, we need you. If your child needs extra practice on their homework to get the content, we need you. We don't need yeah. money all the time. Sometimes your presence and your your ability just to be there is mm-hmm. so helpful. So if we can find a way to get into our school systems and find out what can we do to supplement the learning that's going on, then those mm-hmm. very same things can happen if there are qualified teachers and qualified leaders within that school building. What do you? Th- how important are uh, volunteers in schools and impoverished communities? Critical. It's extremely critical. That's why I'm so grateful for the Ellen moment, because for a moment, it put a flashlight on, you know, just uh, what's going on inside of America. And in regards mm. to our school, uh, South Greenville Elementary in Greenville, North Carolina is a school that most teachers do not want to teach at, And most parents will never send their students. They will verbally tell you that. But when, mm. this, when the national spotlight hit our school, it allowed us to have a moment where people can open their eyes and volunteers came in. And at that moment, substitutes, we can get everybody to come in and help, you know, because it seemed like it was such a great thing and for FaceTime. Sure. But we still need that on a consistent basis, man. If you truly believe in helping all children, you're going to show up. It's just, it's almost like mission work. If you truly believe in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and you truly believe that the message is good and he really is our savior and died for our sins, then you will be out here talking about it a little bit, at least some, some. <laughs> you ain't going to hear up somewhere, you know. You want to get out there sooner or later if you really, really believe it. Yeah, if you really believe it. Um, I, I think that, you know, that's <laughs> that's really important. So uh, what? how would you or what would you say to encourage um, black adults or, or, you know, young adults who are listening, mm-hmm. most specifically, you know, men to become educators? Why is it important? It is extremely important for people to start to start looking at the education system um, and becoming a teacher, mainly because you are giving a child an opportunity to be exposed to knowledge that they may not get anywhere else inside of their educational career. I have friends. I have experienced it myself. I documented inside of the book where I have gone through the public education system and information was withheld from me that would allow me to be even more successful. And I don't know if people really know Mm. how it feels to be on the short end of the stick and you've seen others around you get information that could have helped you be better, but it's not a really good feeling. So my mindset as an educator is that we're knowledge bearers, that we have resources and we have access to information that will cut away the chains of poverty that are choking our children, cut away the chains of ignorance that Mm. are choking our children and actually put them in a position to be successful. So I always challenge people, if you're a critical Mm. thinker, if you love helping individuals, yeah. if you don't love kids, try looking at high yeah. school or even look at becoming a professor. But being a teacher is probably one of the is to me one of the best uh, jobs that you could ever have. One of the most noble professions because you're imparting information to help somebody else's life. And what greater privilege, you know? I think I think that's I think you're right. Here's one of the challenges, though. Um, you know, so one of the the the, the goals of this. You know, this podcast is always have really open and honest, you know, dialogue. Um, and, and so one of the things that becomes challenging is that we all, you know, we live in America. Mm-hmm. So we understand that America is a capitalist country. And so people aspire, a lot of folks, I won't say everybody, people aspire to be affluent, right? Mm-hmm. To, to 
and maybe super wealthy or rich or what have you. And everybody knows that teaching school does not pay a lot of money, mm-hmm. right? At least public school system. Um, how do how do you feel like we as a country and as people should think about, talk about, look at doing things that would incentivize teachers um, to because I because I guess what I'm saying in, in short is that I feel like if teaching paid more money, mm-hmm. more people would teach. Oh, very true. But just because you're getting paid more money doesn't mean you're going to do your job if, if, effectively. And I agree with that. I agree with educators should be paid more money. That's that's fact. And I'm not trying to hear any politicians say we're looking for money because they just funded the state of Florida with $67 million for a gun program. So me personally, I'm not trying to hear that. The money is there. And you're right about a capitalistic society. It's more mm-hmm. so are you willing to put the funds where your mouth is at and to the proper places? Now, as far as there being money in education, mm-hmm. there is money inside of education. But I didn't. I was not aware of it. I was ignorant to it. You can actually sell the products, the things you're doing inside the classroom. You can write books. You can get paid as a speaker. You can go teach at a very qualified school or a high-performing school where they incentivize their teachers. You can go to a different state where teachers are paid a little bit mm-hmm. more. There are certain areas in America where teachers are paid poorly mm-hmm. and are not doing well. That is facts, right? But at the same time, there are some mm-hmm. areas and pockets where there are educators that are being paid extremely well because they have brought the mindset of an entrepreneur into the classroom and they have utilized their gifts to be able to bring more money mm-hmm. into their pockets. Because one thing for sure, we are a capitalistic society. So if you can find some type of tool, some type of to possess some type of information that is valuable, people are going to pay it for you. Will pay for you inside of the education. System. So, so how do you, um, in in terms of teachers in in certain places in the country being paid uh, less than most people would feel is fair? Why do you feel like teachers are paid so little in those places? I think it mainly it based off of the county lines and the living costs within that area. As well, you know, you have different factors that go into that. Certain counties have supplemental areas. So, for example, in Greenville, supplemental increase is five percent. For Wake County, which is where Raleigh, the capital of our state, is at, is eighteen percent. And Raleigh is just a bigger area, you know. So those factors play in, into play at times, but. Um, most importantly, man, I think we just need to continually push that educators do need to be paid more. And I really want people to understand the the value of being an educator, you know. And, and I think once you understand that, uh, yeah. it's, it's a very important thing because in our society, especially with social media and things, people want to become wealthy and, and famous, but they don't understand that those two are don't necessarily always go together. I know a couple of millionaires who only have. 300 followers on Instagram to get 20 <laughs> right. likes per picture, but they're doing extremely well. And I know of some who have 50,000 followers on Instagram and they're completely broke. So I think it's about finding that balance and then finding out what you love and understanding the value in it. I love teaching because I can create a world for a child that makes it absolutely magical for them. So every mm-hmm. day, some days I go to school today with a nice suit on. And to yeah. them, they only see people in suits, black men in churches and yeah. suits. But in that day, I am killing that visual and showing them that Mr. Bonham is a businessman mm-hmm. and I'm wearing a suit. And I show them he's a millionaire. He wears a suit. He's doing well for himself. He yeah. wears a suit. It's all about giving them the experience so when they become grown men and women, mm-hmm. that amazing things can happen. Are you, are you, do you have like, what would you say to parents, because uh, there, there are parents listening or or caregivers, grandparents, uncles, aunts, whatever, what would you say to them? What would you tell them uh, 
in terms of some things they could do or should do if they have small children who are, you know, either, you know, three, four, five, coming into first grade, coming into second grade. What are some tools they can give their kids um, to help their kids be prepared? Number one, and this is so key, man, to understand the importance of respect, not listening to somebody demean you and disrespect you, but understanding in a sense to respect authority. I saw a five-year-old yeah. this year, kindergarten, come in on the first yeah. week of school, call her teacher a fat white bee, pull the behavior specialist dreads, and then call the principal a bee, and the parent come in saying, I don't know where she gets this from. But the older sister at the school is saying, you have a chair at home that you put her in when she acts yeah, like right. this. So the very first thing we need to make sure is that we're teaching our children respect. I have two nephews. You can ask my entire family. I'm extremely hard on them because they're African-American men, and I already know the, the different discrimination and stereotypes that's placed against them already. If they're too busy, they're going to say they need medicine. No, they don't need medicine. Is they learn how to calm down or redirect mm-hmm. them. So the very first thing we can teach them is how to respect authority and how to maneuver. Okay? The, sure. the second thing we need to make sure we teach our children is how to ask proper questions mm-hmm. to gain information. You're not going to school for no reason. You're going to school to actually learn. Don't be afraid to raise your mm-hmm. hand in class and ask a question about the lesson or something that you may want to know about sure. because that's the job of an educator is to provide information. I think mm-hmm. if we can establish respect and then we can teach them how to understand the value of education mm-hmm. and ask questions, we can see a little shift. You know, I, There's no secret. There are students that are assaulting teachers mm-hmm. nowadays. There are students that are... Sure. are, are Verbally and physically disrespecting educators, which makes the gun conversation even more dangerous. Because you get to high school level and you have a gun inside a classroom that's provided to you from the state to protect against a a shooter that invades the building. And let's say that the young lady does not understand cultural competency and is is scared of one of the bigger students in the background and she pulls the gun because he looks like he was going to charge her. He looked like he was going to charge her. We have a whole entire issue now. And, and just to touch your subject, because I know you love talking about this, that's what makes the Parkland situation so unique. Um, it's an unfortunate situation. Every school is an unfor- school shooting is an unfortunate situation. Mm-hmm. But it makes America uncomfortable, and it brings uh, a huge uh, amount of chaos to it because yeah. most school shootings are done by white men, right? And in, most, in some shootings, for example, when a young man went and shot up all the individuals in the church and killed nine yeah. members— he was able to walk freely. The guy at this Parkland shooting was able to walk freely. But you just had Stephen Clark, who was shot 20 times because they thought he had a gun, which was his cell phone. Or Alton Sterling, uh, his officer, was not charged, even though he was shot and murdered on, on, right. on camera. So America and the youth that are in schools now are seeing yeah. this inconsistency. We're seeing sure. this this. This injustice is happening, and it's it's not going to be okay, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, those things are really, um, I, and, and you're right. I talk a lot about social justice through all my social media platforms, um, and I think one of the things that is most disturbing is when people see these things play out, and there is nothing that happens. Um, when I watch the uh, Parkland students at the White House um, sitting mm-hmm. with the president. Um, I thought it was great that the conversation was happening, right? To be right. no, no, no kids, you know, should be going to school and have to worry about am I going, you know, be able to live through my school day? Um, mm-hmm. But the reality is, gun violence happens in you know poor communities, poor communities, and communities of color on a daily basis. It's just yes. 
you know, 30 people at one time. But I'm sure that if, you look at the, if we look at the data, there are, you know, Parklands that happen, the number of kids that are killed at Parkland, 17 people rather, killed at Parkland, that happens on a regular basis, cumulatively, mm-hmm. you know, in these other spaces. And so I do think that people are not having a complete conversation about gun violence and poverty and racism and all these things that are kind of, you know, um, that are kind of overlapping in in our communities. Mm-hmm. What do you think as an educator? Um, do you talk to your kids or can you talk to your kids about gun safety and gun violence? Definitely. The kids where I teach it happens every day. We've had lockdown drills during school where there's a shootout happening. Not necessarily in school, it's in the hood behind them. So you have to have those conversations about, you know, baby, you need to understand how to what safety is, understand what a gun is, understand you, you need a permit to actually own mm-hmm. a gun, understand how to hit the floor, you know, properly to make sure you're yeah. safe. You know, these our students deal, students of color and other Individuals that may live in impoverished neighborhoods deal with these realities all the time. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 you do have that conversation with them because I care for them. I want them to be safe in all aspects. I want them to I want to teach them other than just adding two digit numbers and understanding the, the main idea to, and the characters and settings inside of a story. Yeah. I want my students to be fully equipped. So I do have those conversations with them in the right context. And it provides a learning experience to make sure they're successful, to make sure they understand how to maneuver in life. How, how do you, what is your uh, position on uh, the idea the president is floating about arming teachers? I'm actually sick and tired of people that are suggesting things for educators that have never stepped foot inside of a classroom or not licensed to be an educator, have never went through a program to be an educator and do not even have children within that particular school system. Mm. And mm. somehow we don't understand that we can shut that down by simply voting. Oh, Yeah. Of course, of course, people are going to kick up and give us what we want during the election year because they want to stay inside of office. But the moment that we understand that we have the power to vote these individuals out, yeah. then truth things can begin to happen. Sure. And, and I, that's why our focus needs to be it. I do not like it. And, and it, 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 does, it bothers me. Um, yeah. But as I grow as a man and the more research I do and the more I read, as crazy as it sounds, um, yeah. I think most people do not want to speak out against injustice or speak out against racism and things because there's a side that's benefited from it. Right, well, I think you're exactly right. So I, I, t- I take that as you're not supportive of teachers having guns. Not at all. Because t- logistically, it just doesn't work out, to be honest with you, bro. If we look at this, a shooter enters the school. I go get the gun out of the closet. Do I leave my kids and lock the door or do I wait for the shooter to come into the room. Not only that, who's going to provide for the gun to buy the gun? Who's going to provide the gun permit? Even if they do that, who's going to make sure that we're trained properly? Even if they do that, that training is going to take away from our main focus, which is to educate our children properly. And even if they get to the step of funding the guns, what happens to you guys not saying that you don't have any money to pay teachers or to provide the students with proper books or supplies to make sure they can grow up and be amazing human beings? And people don't want to point yeah. out the fact that there were sheriffs not only just one, but I've read that there was four sheriffs in the school that did not sure. act. Well, there's a resource officer in the school, and then there were there were there were sheriffs outside of the school who didn't go in because they said they were confused about what was happening or where the shooter was. So, I mean, I do think, but you know, but the counter argument might be that in Maryland last week, that resource officer uh-huh. was able to, you know, shoot the shooter and. Mm-hmm. And, and and arguably stop more deaths and carnage from happening. Um, but he wasn't right. a teacher. 
right? He was, a, yeah. he was there for a specific purpose. He was a resource officer with a weapon. Um, uh-huh. As it relates to these kind of conversations around inequity in education, um, do you have, because you, you clearly opted to be in this particular school um, where you are. Oh, that's a story for another day. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> that, goes, that goes into the conversation of black men inside of education. So to be completely honest with you, when I went to a job fair, I knew I wanted to teach in this county because it was close to home. Yeah. And um, they set my interview up at this school. When I talked to my other friends that were beginning teachers their first year, they had interviews at multiple schools. So in a way, I was placed at the school because as a college, broke college kid, you get the first job offer. Uh, brother, I want that. Yeah, I'll take it. Um, right. So God has allowed it to work out, you know, in an amazing way. Um, but in a sure. sense, I, I didn't pick to teach at the school. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Fact. Were you only, I don't know. Were you only given one school to go to? One school to go to. Now, I can say I have decided to stay here on purpose even after the Ellen moment, even after multiple job opportunities, because right now I understand this is just where I'm needed. And my students are feeding yeah. off of me in such an amazing way that's causing them to improve. It will be highly yeah. robbery to sort of like leave them high and dry right now. Um, and I'm just not going yeah. to do that right now. I understand that. I think that's admirable. and Because, I mean, there has to be, you know, someone who helps kids in those situations because they at, at the at the point where they're in the second grade and they're mm-hmm. you know five six seven years old right. you know they they're in situations that they have no control over you know so someone someone has to be there how 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 many kids are you seeing because you, you you alluded to this in your earlier statement how many kids are you seeing who are maybe six mm-hmm. or seven in second grade because they're retention oh, well, they're, they're probably eight or nine and i have three in my class right now Normally in Title I schools, the number is a little bit higher. Um, and that's because academically they're mm-hmm. behind and you can't seem to close that gap. So to give a greater context, I had, uh, in the beginning of the year, I have 20 kids. Um, 15 were on first grade and kindergarten grade level, but I teach second grade. 75% of my students were below grade mm-hmm. level. 50% or, or 40% were far below grade level. Like, it's going to take a year and a half mm-hmm. to catch them up. So what ends up happening is students continually fall behind academically due to behavior or home life, or they're just not understanding the content, or they probably couldn't mesh with the teacher well, and it just puts them behind. Mm. And we already know that any child that is retained uh, at least one time is more likely to drop out of high school. And if that happens in more impoverished communities, yeah. that's how we have a higher statistic of individuals dropping yeah. out. It's just, and that's where the school to prison pipeline truly begins. And it's it's just a big mess, man. But there are educators out here that are showing that you can make a difference. There are school systems out here that are showing that you can help yeah. our children and all children grow. It's just the fact that it boils down to, do you really want to put the work in for it? Well, it's interesting you say that. I, I, I was I was talking to a couple of friends of mine who work in congressional spaces um, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, and we were having this particular conversation about education, and I told them that, you know, as crazy as I may sound, I really feel like it is, you know, one of the most important things that we need to address. Because right. when you look at the inequity in education, um, all these other statistics line up with people who are poorly educated. Yeah. Look at people who are living in 
in poverty, when you look at high levels, whatever you, wherever you have high levels of crime, you have high levels of poverty. And that's usually connected to people who are not, you know, who don't have, who are not exposed to the same type of education as people in suburbia. And I said, if you just look at like what's happening in the schools, uh-huh. like, like you said, it, I mean, there has to be one of two things. Either kids are not being educated in the same way or people of color are genetically predisposed to not being smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Exactly. And we know that's not at all. So there has to be a real definitive answer as to why we keep seeing this. Um, are you having conversations about the inequity of education along racial lines? And if so, with whom? Yes, sir. Uh, I actually <laughs> go around the entire country now, and that's the uh, avenue that God's allowed to bless me with, to be able to speak to different educators and school systems at different conferences about what I see within my classroom and in the inconsistencies I see within the school system in regards to students of color and to how we're properly serving them. Um, and it just it just goes back to a foundational level, man, that children learn from those that actually care about them and they truly understand them and have the proper academic material to follow suit. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I used to see a lot of people ask where all the teachers of color are at, but we don't really want to talk about that because we act like it just happened. But it happened because of the injustice inside of America. So quick history lesson, when there was a Brown, Board, Brown versus the Board of Education, they decided to actually integrate schools there were an over 20,000 teachers of colors, Ted, that were let go, mm-hmm. not due to a bad or a poor evaluation, but due to that one action happening and started to integrate schools. And they decided to take, you know, uh, Caucasian teachers over the teachers of color. Um, and those type of movements, those type of issues create mm-hmm. long systemic problems that are affecting our children to this day. And the issue is that people don't want to say anything about it because people have benefited from it so long. There are students that have benefited from the systems being designed the way they are. There are students that have benefited from, you know, having certain rules and procedures and things in place that will allow them to succeed in the classroom. Um, And there are students that have failed uh, far behind in in regards to that. So Mm -hmm. um, it's it's all about dismantling those systems, man, and then trying to figure out how can we – really push equity to the front to make sure that all of our students are being successful. And I think once you start preaching those things and exposing Mm -hmm. those things, you will quickly begin to see who's really supporting that true ideology by the action they take Mm -hmm. in place behind that. Because everybody says that children can learn, but who's putting up the actions and the money to say they want children to learn? Sure. Yeah. uh, And you you referenced Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, Linda Brown passed away uh, recently. Um, who was, you know, uh, her father took her to that school, um, Mm -hmm. to, to push for desegregation. Um, so, so you, you've, you've mentioned this a couple of times, um, as we, as we move towards the end of this conversation, like I, I, I do think that, (laughs) uh, systemic racism, um, institutional racism is a really huge problem in America. And I do find that there are a lot of people who don't want to have the conversation, um, mm-hmm. who find it uncomfortable to have the conversation. And in episodes that will air after yours, I've had this conversation with the likes of, of Kirk Franklin. I've had this conversation with um, a, a guy by the, name, by the name of Jesse Lipscomb, who started a movement in Canada called Make It Awkward, um, where he was walking down the street making a PSA for Edmonton, city of Edmonton in Canada, and was called the N-word by three white guys driving down the street. <laughs> why, literally why he was filming a PSA saying, come to our city, it's the best city in the world. Right. Yeah. So, 
uh, we started a whole, it went viral. Um, his wife came up with the hashtag make it awkward, which basically means when somebody says something that's racist, that is sexist, that is homophobic, that you do what you need to, that you make it awkward for that person. Mm-hmm. That you do not allow that type of language that demeans other, any human being for any reason, you know, to be normalized in your presence. Right. So given that, and having said that, what do you feel like, um, what are some of the things you feel like we should be talking about um, in our national d- discussion um, as it relates to systemic racism, like ways that we can approach this conversation? Because I know you are, based on what you just said, I mean, these kids are, you know, having lockdowns based on what's happening in the back of the school, mm-hmm. across the street from, you said, a cemetery and and then near Section 8 housing, right? Um well, let me ask you this before I get to that. Do you have conversations with your kids about race and racism? And if you do, what? We do. Um, and we try not to do it around just Black History Month either. We try to do it around this, the, just the general approach of that is a human being. And we talk about is it fair to discriminate against somebody based off an of internal or external characteristic? And one word they love to talk about is fair. Mr. Bonder, that's, that's not fair. Mm. You know, it's not fair that you put all the... The, the kids that have on white shoes on this side and they get a chance to go to lunch five minutes early and they can stay outside five minutes extra time for recess. That's, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. So we center our conversations around that. And it's a very deep uh, contextual uh, conversation, but it will translate the older they become for them to understand when an injustice is happening and to be able to speak up about it and articulate yourself themselves in a very powerful way. So I introduce those things to them. I make sure that I show them strategically that every white person is not bad and every black person is not good. I make sure that we give them that conversation so they won't get sucked into those those, uh, dysfunctional arguments. I just want my children to be exposed to open up their minds to be able to critically think and to really yeah. dissect problems and understand when there's something wrong that's happening in their atmosphere and environment around them. And that's worked out in a very tremendous way in how they behave and how they learn mm-hmm. inside my classroom. Do you think that as a country, do you think we will have an honest conversation about race or are having them? Somebody said a comment that America, America is like that child that went outside and played in the dirt and rolled around and, you know, put mud inside of their hair and, you know, was putting worms near their mouth and jumping in the rain puddles and then went inside and put on a clean new suit and went to school mm-hmm. and act like they did not just take a dirt bath. And they just walk around <laughs> speaking to people, treating people with respect, but not acting like they're not yeah. covered in filth under their clothes. And that's the issue with America. We yeah. have done some America, and we we have had some heinous acts done against people of my. We've done against minorities, against women, against different uh, cultures and ethnicities throughout this country. You know, and it's not that far removed. Let's be very clear about that. Slavery is not that far yeah. removed. So the when we start having those conversations about what has happened. People like to become offended. Well, why are you bringing up things from the past? And that's because when you put those type of actions out, Jim Crow laws and segregation and things of that magnitude, you are putting certain people at an advantage to become successful and build generational wealth and provide them with different uh, avenues to create success long term. 
and you have put and you have disenfranchised yeah. a whole entire group of people. Um, and, and that's an issue. Yeah. And I think people don't want to talk about it, Ted, is because it's going to expose and make people feel like they haven't earned it themselves because they've had a little help systematically. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just the truth. Yeah. That That is just the truth. Well, I do it is the truth, and I think that people don't want to have you know uncomfortable conversations. And we we will have a lot on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of those, those conversations uh, because that's just the nature of who I am as a, as a person. And I want to be able to have these conversations in a respectful, um, productive way, but to have real, honest dialogue. And I do think that I, I often say that you know racism is racism and violence are in the DNA yes. of America. Um, America was born out of violence when you look at what happened with the indigenous people here and and the quote-unquote you know settlers or colonists or colonizers um and then when you know people from africa were brought here you know in chains as slaves and lived as such for hundreds of years and then like you said we go through jim crow and you know sharecropping and segregation and the whole nine i mean only have the late 60s but we have the civil rights act passed so i mean that's i mean my mother was born (laughs) you know at that point in time, like, you know, and, and I think that that's one of the things that we must have honest dialogue about because it gives context to right. why you're in a school teaching kids every day who are living in impoverished right. uh, situations. It's, it's the, there is a direct correlation between the history of our country and why you're having to deal with, um, you know, the fallout of, you know, second grade students you know, having to contend with whatever they happen to deal with in their life. And if you were to go to other schools where you've been offered opportunities at and this it's, point, it's, you wouldn't have to deal with that. I'm enjoying this podcast, by the way, so I, I apologize. And it's okay if we go extended. Like, I'll carve enough time because I'm really enjoying it. But I, it's 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 a byproduct of all of those decisions that has been made in the past, right? So we're trying to find out a way. So for and it's, mm-hmm. it's frustrating because it's all around us, but it's in subtle ways. So it may not be whites only on this side and colors only on this side. But it's more so ingrained into little systematic rules and mm. things that we really don't pay attention to. So, for example, statistics say that one out of three African-American men are projected mm-hmm. to go to prison. Um, and I think there's another statistic that says if they even do not have a father, the statistic is around the same one out of three or one out of four. That's out of Section 8 housing. A man is not allowed to live in the household. Yeah. So even if the father is present, he can't even be in the household with right. you or you're not going to be able to have proper housing or have to find a way to receive help from some other avenue which creates an entire different problem. So it's little things like that, man, right. that not only perpetuate the systems in the past, but it really makes the conversation uncomfortable for people to have right now. Well, because because what we have is a couple of things. Mm-hmm. We have people contending with guilt, right? People who identify as white are saying, well, I don't want to feel guilty because I don't own slaves, right? right. <laughs> or I'm, yeah. I'm not a racist. Um, and, and so there's that component. And then you have what I call... Well, I didn't quit create the term, mm-hmm. but you have what's called white fragility. And and I think that it is why because people were saying that, you know, bullying is a problem, which it is. Right. But but somebody was trying to say that bullying is the reason we've had these school shootings. And I'm like, well, who has been bullied more than black people and women and LGBT people and trans people. I mean, they're not going up shooting schools. Yeah, I mean, I haven't, <laughs> right? I haven't seen a Hispanic student, from my, from my knowledge and understanding, that's went up and shot a school, and they're currently being the ones that's being bullied right now inside of the media, mainstream yeah. media. I agree. So I think that's, 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 that's not, I mean, we have to look deeper than that. Um, what do you feel like we do? What are, what are some things that we can do 
um, to establish equity, like to kind of remedy, if possible, why black people and brown people are living in more um, adverse circumstances. One of the main things that uh, to provide equity as far as in the education system or where they're living at currently, like what's going on with their as far as the living situation. Either one. I mean, you could, well, let's talk about education. Um, let's talk about education. Okay. So inside of the education system, um, one of the things that I have noticed, and this goes back to why some specifically African-American men are hesitant about going inside of education, there is a terminology called the invisible tax. You can Google it and add an a, a addition sign mm-hmm. plus, you know, African-American male educator. And it's because as men, black men, we're put into predominantly African-American schools and we're put there because we're looked at more mm-hmm. as a disciplinarian figure instead of being the king and master of our content. And that provides an invisible tax because mm-hmm. it makes my job description even more. Not only am I a teacher, I'm a teacher slash behavior specialist. So they put the rough kids in my classroom. They bounce the rough kids from the other classrooms into my classroom. And it provides a level of frustration and burnout mm-hmm. that is unseen. And it, it just creates a a lot of disparity on why people are not, African-American men are not going inside of the education system. And one of the things that America can begin to start doing is instead of throwing, you know, African-American mm-hmm. men into these tough schools or putting them as leaders and administrators over these quote-unquote rough schools, you can start actually having sessions and trainings on cultural competency for every educator and hold every educator to that high standard of knowing your children, building those relationships with your children, understanding their culture, so you can then connect your context and the culture to their context and culture so true academic learning can happen. Um, because to be honest with you, I am getting my administration degree, Ted, but I'm not rushing because I don't want to be placed at a school just because I'm an African-American male. I know my content as well. You don't want to be Mr. Clark. <laughs> I don't want to be Mr. Clark. And it's, and it's sad because I've been dealing with it for the past five years and even people in my school can attest to that. And I've been pulling that weight and it's not easy. Mm. It's not easy to be a dad and a teacher because the child can't decipher, mm. do I want to hug him or do is this time for me to sit down and learn? And it's not saying it's not something that I'm not taking upon me because mm. I want to give them that. Like I, if the child doesn't have a dad, I, mean, I, I want to be there for you. I want to yeah. provide that equity in his social emotional skills. But at the same yeah. time, that's not my primary job. My primary job is to make sure I'm educating you and giving you the opportunities to be successful. So that's one of the things America can do is start putting in cultural competency classes so we can train all educators because our profession is dominated by uh, a certain yeah. ethnic group to make sure that we understand all of the students that we're serving. Because one statistic that stood out to me is that by 2040 or 2050, the Caucasian culture will become a sub, it will become a minority so it, that's going to be interesting, right? You right. run into a school system, school system with students, and they're no longer the majority. So how will education act? Because now our minority students are performing mm. as well as the majority culture. So we have to begin to start thinking about these things and putting in certain systems to provide equity within these classrooms. Do you think that that's why America has been performing more poorly on a global comparison scale over the last however many years? I- I'm sure there are a lot of factors, to be completely honest with you. Okay. Um, so while we're not performing as well, mm-hmm. uh, the, there's a test called the, the, the PISA test, P-I-S-A. It's given to 10th graders every three years. Um, and what happens is America, we haven't placed in the top 10 in a very long time. I right. think it's not as far as reading and 
reading and math, we were d- below the 25th, the 25th rank. So I think we have a lot of issues that we have to address within our school systems. We also mm-hmm. have to take the time to study other schools um, in other countries and try to figure out what they're doing um, correctly. Um, and there are some yeah. of examples, but it's, I don't think say that we can't do it. I think it's a matter of we want to. Sure. Do we really want to do it? For example, just an example, building the wall. They're going to pull that money from somewhere. And I know it's in the billions. I'm not sh- I saw some crazy number. This is just an estimate. I think it said 25 billion. It may be more, it may be less. But they are seriously searching yeah. for money and building prototypes to make sure we have a wall. But we have drastic problems yeah. in impoverished communities. We have drastic problems within our public education system right now. And we're acting like it's not there. And we're going to suffer for right. that if we don't fix it. I think you're exactly right. I think we will. Uh, and I think we already are. Yeah. I think we will even more as time goes on. Um, I've, I've often thought about this is a different level of education. Um, but can you give give us a little bit of your insight on the complexity, yeah. the burden, if you will, not complexity, the burden of student loan and student debt for a college student? <laughs> Especially as an educator, man, I I was lucky to have an athletic scholarship for basketball for a couple of years. Um, but mm-hmm. taking on that amount of debt, man, and then you add up into the ratio of what you'll be making versus how long it's going to be able to take you to pay it back, it just doesn't add up. And mm-hmm. if you go and get your master's degree, it's going to be, you know, it's going to double even more as far as interest in the payments. So it's just at a crazy astronomical number right now. Um, and we have to do something mm-hmm. about it because some educators are just not willing. We have some teacher forgiveness programs. If you pay a certain payment for 10 mm-hmm. years straight, they'll wipe it through. They have some programs. If you look at the Title I yeah. school like I do, they'll forgive $5,000. Um, that's not even a full semester for some universities. Um, yeah, so that's just like, a, you know, it's an issue. It's a problem. So you, it's almost really about where, where is our mindset as a society? Are we really believing to put children first. And if we do, do we really support our educators in a way to help them with student loans, man? Because it's, it's an issue. And it also can be prevented if we start teaching our students, you know, college is great. It's an asset if you're going to major in a degree that's going to help you be uh, beneficial in whatever career field or whatever business you're trying to open up. But we do have students that are in college that go and have an undecided major until they're a sophomore racking up student loan debt and basically yeah. wasting time, and they're paying for it, not at that moment, but when they graduate six months later, that bill will be knocking at their door. Do you feel like there is a way to strike well, a way to strike the balance? Because as student debt is increasing, that's directly connected to, to tuition being uh-huh. like, I mean, out of, in my opinion, out of control of some some schools. And so you have kids who want to go to, like I went to Morehouse, uh-huh. and you know, tuition, tuition then, you know, I wasn't in the late nineties. It was, you know, I think it was like $15,000, $16,000 or something like that. And when I think about that, you know, going to an HBCU and you have a lot of kids, you know, who are not, not, I mean, Morehouse may be a little bit different because a lot of the guys did have, you know, families who had money where they were able to pay, but you know, a lot of kids don't have that. Um, do you think there should be some conversation around tuition or is tuition, not the issue. Yeah. Yeah. I, excuse me. I think it's such a complex topic because I've been trying to search for solutions myself because historically black colleges decided to 
of the, especially the, the belt line are starting to suffer in a sense, even my university, Elizabeth City State University. Um, and they even have mm-hmm. programs now, man, where they'll actually pay your tuition to come to college um, based off a certain grant and fund that they mm-hmm. have. So it's really trying to find that balance, man, and coming to the tables to really understand how can we uh, strike a balance to make sure that people are able to afford to go to college and actually repay the loan when they graduate. But it's just a difficult a difficult thing to dissect because the situation is so different for so many different people. And for the record, fifteen thousand dollars mm-hmm. for first semester is absolutely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, got- <laughs> that's wild. I mean, it's very expensive. Um, and one of the things, though, that we know, I know, was was it was of value to me was at the time I was at Morehouse. I'm not saying this is worth fifteen thousand dollars a semester, but you couldn't have more than thirty students in a class, with the exception of a lab. Mm -hmm. So the focus of education, the fact that the teachers actually knew you by name, Mm -hmm. knew when you were present, knew when you weren't, you know, I thought was pretty important. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially when you have an education, you know, when you're being educated on that level with that kind of intensity and you know so much information you're getting. In a short period of time, um, I want to talk to you about a couple more things before we wrap. Um, as, we, as we talked about, kind of, you know, the, the school shootings and violence in schools. I'm sorry, not not violence in schools, but the school mm-hmm. shootings. One of the things that I've been wrestling with, <laughs> um, and I'm going to have another show about this you know, when we completely focus on it, is the kind of argument that's being made from gun rights owners gun rights advocates, Second Amendment folks, as they label themselves, and people who are members of the NRA. What's, what's most interesting is that the, the NRA report came out today. It said the NRA's um, donations tripled after the Parkland shooting, mm-hmm. which was deeply disturbing to me for a whole lot of reasons. But this entire conversation we're having and the reason that shooting happened and all the other ones is completely predicated mm-hmm. on the Second Amendment. Um, what I've struggled with is I, I feel like the Second Amendment, the way we look mm-hmm. at it, like it's a relic and that people's interpretation of it is deeply misguided. Um, so for, for people who are listening who don't know, and I want you to respond after I read this, this is this is the exact It says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I'll read it one more time. It says a well-regulated militia, comma, Uh being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Uh So the conversation we hear is always just fixated on, I have the right to keep and bear arms. Uh Gives no context you know, it does not mention the preceding part of that particular amendment, right. which gives context to the why mm-hmm. you have the right to keep and bear arms. So what is your takeaway from that? And yeah, what are your thoughts? I think it's very important that you were stating that we need to make sure we're looking at the complete context of it. And a lot of times when humans, when we want something, we have a, a deep desire for something, we'll pull mm-hmm. out what we want and just rock and roll with it. But I think it's very important that you pointed out the point about the militia and and the reason why it is there for the state. I just think people, I'm not, honestly, to me, I'm not shocked that their donations tripled after the Parkland shooting. 
You know, and even as I think more into it with these gun companies and stocks and the different individuals that have their, you know, influences upon politicians and different individuals, I'm not shocked that they found $67 million to fund teachers with guns in Florida because Mm -hmm. there is somebody getting paid behind that. Um, And once again, it goes from not just focusing on the student is going back to the the dollar because we're a capitalistic society and we're going to let that take us to the grave. Um, I do believe some people blow the Second Amendment out of context, and I want—I do believe we need some type of reform around these AR-15 or AK-15, AK-47 guns and assault rifles that people are just allowed to carry. It's interesting. I saw a social experiment on YouTube not too long ago about a, a Caucasian man carrying a, an AR yeah. rifle around on the street, and nobody said anything. But the guy that was conducting the experiment was an African American male, and he starts to carry the AR rifle around the street. Four police cars pulled up. The wife had to get out, let them know this is just an experiment, and they still mm-hmm. wouldn't listen to her. And and that's just an issue. We have to we have to, yeah, we have too many things we have to 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 fix. One of the things is we do need reform um, as quickly as possible because there's been tons of shootings before Parkland. I think there was about I want to say 15 school shootings before yeah. Parkland that have happened, but the media was not paying any attention yeah. to it. Um, and, and it's just an issue. And I definitely want to give a shout out to the students yeah. at Parkland for understanding equity because I saw how they visited the school yes. in D.C. to give a platform to those yeah. students who have all been dealing with school shootings and, and neighborhood shootings for a very long part of their yes. life. And it gave them the opportunity to come onto their platform to join this thing together so we can make a difference. I do want to give them credit yeah. for that. I think that's, I think you're right. I think that's super important. I watched, I was watching the Van Jones show. Um, and, and one of the, the, the guys from Parkland, um, he did say that he, he empathizes with, with, with black students who, who live with this on a regular basis. And he said that if he were, he's not, I'm not black, but if I was black, I don't know how comfortable I'd be with teachers with guns in my school. Right. And it's to the point that you made earlier about, you know, how we engage these conversations, um, <clears throat> the issue of race, um, mm-hmm. as it, how, it, how it impacts these conversations that we're having or not having, um, and the like. But I think that it's, it's, a, it's something that we really, really need to to talk about. And I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you are, um, you know, not just an educator, um, but someone who is concerned about other issues and who sees these kind of broader issues and who is, you know, impacted um, by them in your daily work life as you, as you're doing what I think is a really incredibly admirable, admirable job of educating young people. And most especially taking the time to, you know, to see these young people in their situation mm-hmm. and try to do something um, that helps them to, to, to attain a certain amount of self-worth and self-value and treating them as if they are as important as any other student in, you know, in the country because and, they are. And they are. And, um, and, but I know there are some people that don't view them the same. And unfortunately, there are some people that are in a position of authority that do not view them the same, which is why I go so hard and which is why I teach so hard because I want them to be safe at the end of the day, they have that right yeah. to live. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have developed sure. this nasty concept and ideology and even visual. Um, because even if you study psychology, the yeah. desensitization process is real. We've seen so many black men be killed on TV and media that people have become desensitized yeah. to it in a way. I remember when Trayvon Martin happened, we were oh, yeah. all shocked. And, and, 
and, and Eric Garner and then Philando Castile and then I mean we can we can just keep going Tamir Rice and to the point now that it happens we're like yeah. man but it's not like that first initial hurt and I don't want my students to do that because yeah the students are seeing now for example the Parkland shooter was able to walk away but Philando Castile who had the actual gun registration and warned that he had a gun registration was shot and killed in front of his girlfriend and his daughter he did nothing wrong. So when you have when you have people in position like that, and I'm teaching in a, a population um, that people have sort of already written off, it makes my job that much more important. Yeah, I, I think that if you if you look at that and you think about all those situations that you that you talked about, and you have one that was in the a neighboring well, you're in Greenville, you're in South Carolina, oh, Greenville, North um, Carolina. North Carolina, I'm sorry. Yes, sir, okay. North Carolina, the neighboring state, that's what I was going to say, at, at the shooting of Walter Scott. And we all are very clear that the only reason that, that police officer um, was arrested and charged was because there was a video. Right. And, and I mean, that hasn't, even videos haven't helped in some instances. Yes. But this one had to, it had to be so egregious where Walter Scott was running away and he literally shot him in the back and then tried to plant a weapon right. beside his body. I mean, it was kind of like you, you can't really just you know, excuse your way out of that one. But, but, but in, in these other instances, to your point, um, you know, it can become disheartening and it can make you numb to seeing that. I literally saw a video t- today of police officers literally shooting and killing a black man in a wheelchair. Like he was in a wheelchair, like he was in a wheelchair, like, and, and I, I, don't, I couldn't hear what they were shouting to him, but they shot him and he fell out right. of the chair. They literally killed him in the wheelchair today. I mean, I don't know, I don't know if it happened today, but I saw it today. Um, let me, let me, before we, before we wrap, I want to end on a, on a, on a higher note, <laughs> a lighter note. Um, so you didn't know this, um, and, and probably the listeners don't either, but in the age of, you know, Trump and all the other things that are happening in the country and the things that I deal with on a regular basis in terms of where my focus is, issues of social justice and civil rights and equity, um, it can become overbearing and, you know, it can become heavy on me as a person emotionally. So what I decided to do last year um, was I literally Mm -hmm. started taping the Ellen DeGeneres show. And I taped it for about six months without watching it. So I had when I started to watch it, I had close to a hundred episodes on my DVR. So every day, what I would do is turn off the news, (laughs) turn off everything else, and just watch Ellen like two or three episodes because she, you know, there would be shows that be inspirational. She made me laugh. Sometimes I would cry like happy tears. You know, watching people, just good things happen to people, and I needed that injection of positivity in my life on a regular basis which is how I saw your show, the show that you were on. Um, and, and it was just, I mean, it was incredible for me to see you as a person of color, a man, you know, being, not just being an educator, but, 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 but going the extra mile, being innovative uh, enough to say, let me figure out a way to help my students learn. Because at the end of the day, that's obviously, you know, what the goal should be. So seeing that, watching how, you know, you ended right. up on the show, uh, the incorporation of Big Sean in the video and, uh, uh, Ice, uh, it was Ice Cube, I think. Yep. Ice Cube, Migos, Lin-Manuel, Miranda, Ellen herself, even hopped in there for the little remix. 
Yeah, all of that was so powerful. So I, I built that whole story to ask you, like, what was your experience like when you visited the Ellen Show? You've been twice, right? I've been twice. Um, I have been twice. Yeah. Absolutely mind-blowing, man, because I never intended for the moment to happen. I sit sure. back at times and I completely put beside myself how God has blessed me because we all understand, if you truly understand the depths of grace and mercy, and if you've ever taken the L in life, when God finally gives you a moment that he specifically tailored for you, it will always leave you in mm-hmm. tears when you really begin to think upon it. And the video mm-hmm. was just out of pure love for my kids and to have fun. And I saw that turn into mm-hmm. this massive experience. What people don't know is they actually tricked me on the Ellen show. They called me and said they wanted to come to school to film my kids, which is the video they showed when I came mm-hmm. to the stage. And then they said, we're going to invite you to the show mm-hmm. as a thank you. So I go out to California for a couple of days thinking, man, I'm just grateful to get a break from the kids. You know, we, we're just here to celebrate. Everything's fine. And I'm going to go sit in the audience and chill. I get mm-hmm. to see Ellen DeGeneres. I get to dance with Twitch. I actually did. And it's all love. And mm-hmm. before I know it, man, she looks at me during one of the commercial breaks for two seconds and then looks away. And then they start their second, for the last segment of the show, that's when she hit me with, we have a special teacher in the audience. You know, we love teachers. Michael Bonner, come on down. And that moment completely changed my life. I had no idea. So I think people believe I was able to articulate myself because of how composed I was in the moment, which is a guy giving you. And uh, it's been a blessing all the entire last year, man. It's put me in situations and positions to provide for my students in a beautiful way. It's put me in a position to see more of the world and expose that to them. It's given me a chance to actually open up my voice and use my mouth to show that all kids truly do deserve it, specifically those that are put at a at a disadvantage. And I'm grateful to God for the opportunity, man. So if she does ever call back, you know, my mother's a praying woman and she loves Ellen. She firmly believes I'm going to go back. If she does, I'm going to be even more grateful for the moment. And um, I'm just going to continue to try my best to represent the best that I can because I know men of color and people of color aren't necessarily portrayed in a positive light on media all the time. So whenever we get that opportunity, I'm so grateful for every person that's reached out and congratulated me and, and and high five and just show good love and positive energy, man. Because I'll make sure I'm reciprocate out to everybody else. Well, I, I really appreciate your, <clears throat> you doing it. I appreciate you availing yourself again. Like I said, seeing that because I knew, you know, part of what we're doing here is, is we're having conversations um, about, you know, a range of issues. But issues that I think that really affect people on a regular, you know, everyday basis. From the, you know, and, and again, the, the guests are running the gamut from people who do important work like like teaching to yourself to Keith Boykin who's on CNN who's going to be on a later episode talking about the president. So it you know it runs the gamut. Stephanie Mills is doing the show. So it's I mean we're all over the place with guests. But what I wanted to really right. do with you was have this dialogue around um, you know our education system because yeah. I do think that um, for people who live in um, impoverished communities in this country Mm -hmm. um we owe it to them to shine the light there um and and not just to say oh look they're (laughs) they're in poverty but to offer solutions and to work as a country to to inject some some optimism some plans some strategies some finances some resources into those communities so that those kids are not just statistics You know, that we do disrupt 
the uh, the school to prison pipeline so that we do disrupt um, these statistics that talk about how many of these kids are going to drop out or are going to you know end up uh, either perpetuating violence or as a recipient of some violent act. I mean, we have the power and the wherewithal, I think, as a country and as a group of people to do that. But I do think we have to have some conversations inside of our community as well about what we can do to help ourselves, um, given the fact that um, waiting on other communities to help us, I think, is you know not the way we best serve ourselves. Exactly. Right. I think it takes all of us to do it, but we have to have those conversations internally. Right. So um, can you tell people before we go um, the title of your book, where they can find your book, um, and what your social media handles are? Okay. My Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Michael Bonner underscore. Uh, you can follow me there. I love following back people and definitely uh, collaborating and just learning from other individuals. The name of my book is titled Get Up or Give Up, How I Almost Gave Up on Teaching. It is on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Books a Million. You can find it online. Um, and it's a phenomenal read. I've gotten great feedback from it and it's doing really well. And I'm grateful to God for that. So stay tuned. I have some amazing things planned specifically for my students because I believe in mm-hmm. keeping them first. And we want to we want to set the we're going to set the bar for this. We're going to have some fun with this. I believe that, man. Thank you again for your time um, and, and the insight that you've given us. And just, you know, a sneak peek into your personal life and your personal story. Um, I, I think that this will, will be helpful to parents and to um, people, just to people who care about kids and who care about education and who care about how we can make our country better. Um, so I appreciate your time. And um, thank you guys for listening.